Welcome back to another episode of Messages of Necessity. As always, this is James starting off the episode with a recap of some of the big stories we've been following on the Empire Center blog. Our senior fellow for health policy, Bill Hammond, testified before the Joint Legislative Fiscal Committees today, warning that the state's Medicaid spending is spinning out of control. Hammond argues that lawmakers must tamp down Medicaid spending in this year's budget to head off a predictable financial crisis. About 15% of unionized New York state government workers chose not to pay union dues last year, up from 10% in 2020, according to a new research report from the Empire Center. The report uses public payroll records to measure union membership rates after the U.S. Supreme Court's 2018 decision in Janus v. AFSCME which ended the union's ability to force non-members to pay dues. And in our last story, Governor Hochul last month proposed increasing the state's film and TV production subsidies. But a closer review of the data reveals Albany shouldn't greenlight that project just yet. The state loses money with its film incentives, for one, and the film incentives have only a marginal impact on employment. Further, claims that these incentives are helping upstate are wildly overstated. In the last few years, a whopping 92% of the production spending supported by these film credits went to projects in New York City. Be sure to keep listening to the rest of this episode and subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss any of the big stories the Empire Center is covering. Thanks, and stay tuned. Welcome back to Messages of Necessity. I'm here with Howard Husak, who is a Senior Fellow in Domestic Policy Studies at the American Enterprise Institute. And he's the author of Housing New York, part of the Empire Center's policy book, The Next New New York, which you can find at our very cleverly titled website, nextnewyork.net. Howard, great to see you. Thanks for joining us. Great to see you, Tim. Thanks for having me. So let's just jump right into it. Um, We keep hearing that there's a housing crisis in New York. That term is used and thrown around a lot. Um, What gives? What's the deal with housing here? Well, our housing market in New York is always in a crisis. Most cities are not always in a crisis. So we actually do a lot of things wrong that help to create the crisis. We have rent stabilization in New York City that ensures the turnover is going to be really low and people have larger apartments than they really need. We have all sorts of zoning restrictions in many of our uh, towns and villages and, and outlying cities. And so there are lots of reasons that housing supply does not came up with housing demand, even though we're losing population. So we have to get a lot of things wrong in order to keep having a crisis, especially because as I point out in uh, the next New York, Housing New York chapter, we already have far more subsidized housing per capita and in absolute terms than any other state. Well, that's it's funny, you brought up a few points I wanna touch on while we're talking. Um, we have to get a lot of things wrong for this to happen. That seems to be the story of New York, um, sadly enough. But you say in the beginning uh, in your chapter, and I'm going to read this, the city's housing market remains hobbled by counterproductive regulations, inequitable taxes, high prices, and a massive but dysfunctional public housing complex. And I think one of the parts I wanted to, to jump in here is on the counterproductive regulations, because maybe that's one of the easier things to work on. So can you just talk a little bit about some of those regulations that are getting in the way of solving the crisis. Number one to me, and I I 
you know, I know it's a, you know, slightly huge reach politically is the rent stabilization law. Uh, that's almost a million units, which are price regulated. That's the regulation there. Their price is regulated. And as a result, uh, hundreds of thousands of New Yorkers get a really good below market deal and they stick with it forever. So it's like there's a game of musical chairs going on and housing units go off the market, they some come on the market. But if you have one of those chairs, you just keep sitting there because you don't want to be called out for it. And so as a result, turnover is, is twice as slow in rent stabilized units as it is in market rate units. You have young people doubled up in Bushwick and other, other neighborhoods because older people are having empty bedrooms, both in rent-stabilized units and in public housing units. Now, to make matters even worse in terms of regulation, the legislature passed an act in 2019 that said you can't get a price increase in your rent even if you make capital improvements. You can't recapture that in rent. You put in a new kitchen because the old one was falling apart, a new bathroom because the old one was falling apart, don't expect to have a rent increase that reflects your new expenses. And so we have a combination of limited supply because people aren't going to invest if their rent's going to be regulated. And what I call shabbification, things are getting shabbier and shabbier and shabbier. Yeah, it becomes, I mean, really, you create a disincentive for landlords and owners to take care of their buildings if they can't recoup those costs, if they can't, there's no incentive for them to make it better. That makes that makes sense. Well, I guess it doesn't make sense, but um, the way you explain it makes sense. And, and my point is not, my heart is not breaking for the property owners. I am concerned about them because you want them to make a profit, but I'm concerned about making the highest and best use of New York City and New York State's housing stock. And if a lot of it is under-occupied, that's not good for newcomers. It's not good for, for people who need larger units. The incentives that people have in many locales to move on because they, they want to downsize, you don't have that in New York. Right. And, and to be clear, the reason that you say you want the landlords to be able to make a profit is because if they don't, then we won't have landlords. Right? Removing the incentive to own the building and do the thing, then nobody owns those buildings. And then the housing crisis is a whole different kind of crisis, I would think. Well, and if you go back to the 70s and 80s, we've been through that movie before. Right, right. It wasn't good the first time. It won't well, be it's called time. housing abandonment. Yeah. Uh, so, all right. There. So there are obviously particular problems that we have to deal with in New York City, which is its own unique sphere. New York always, the statewide, is a tale of two states. So there's New York City and its immediate metro area, and then there's the rest of the state. Thinking more about the New York City metro area, going out onto Long Island and thinking about the Mid-Hudson Valley just north of the city, um, there's a different problem, a different same problem there, I guess, and it becomes uh, almost a building issue, and there is a NIMBY-like problem where getting new units built and, and permitted and approved has been a problem. Can you say a little bit more about that? Well, it's a deep discussion, Tim. Uh, first of all, one wonders, why do we need more housing if we've lost 400,000 residents? How many have we lost? Oh, I mean, depending how far, million, right? So lots of people are gone. Yeah. And so housing prices sh should conceivably go down. 
Uh, but there is still demand in New York City. And so there's no safety valve for people in New York to move out. And I think Governor Hochul's idea of building more in the suburbs is responsive to that. And as I pointed out in, in, in Housing New York in the next New York, uh, New York has built far less housing in absolute terms and per capita, even than other states in the Northeast, Connecticut and New Jersey. And when you compare us to Florida and Texas, whoa, we're in a different world. They build so much new housing. Liz, can, we, can I stop you there for a minute? Because yeah. this is, um, I pay attention to this and I find it kind of hard to reconcile in my head. We have more affordable housing by whatever definition that is than most states in the country, yet it still is not enough. That's that's what you're arguing here, right? So um, you, you create this spigot in New York City, it's especially pronounced. It's hard to leave the city to go to the immediate suburbs because there isn't enough affordable housing out there. How do you reconcile those two things when we have these huge numbers, but it's not enough? Well, and remember, historically, uh, lower middle class people, poorer people did move out of the city to the expanding suburbs. And the city was so worried about that, that it wanted to keep its middle class and did all sorts of things about that. But uh, the, 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 when you say affordable housing, what we need is what I call natural, naturally occurring affordable housing. We need smaller units, attached row homes, accessory dwelling units, a whole range of supply types. And the suburbs could accommodate those and people could move out. Lots of people have moved out of the city. You know, lower income minority immigrants, they're on Long Island and Long Island could accommodate more of them. So could Westchester County, but NIMBY is a huge issue. People don't want they certainly don't want subsidized housing. They certainly don't want high-rise uh, public housing in the suburbs. So what the, 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 this is not a technical problem. It's a political problem. How do we persuade suburban areas, towns and villages, and hamlets for that matter, I don't know, uh, to allow the production of some kind of new housing? Because that would be a safety valve for the city, it would lower prices in the city as well because some of the demand would be shifted since our population is, is flat at best. And the idea that we're gonna mandate, this is what the governor has basically said, we're gonna mandate uh, different types of uh, higher density housing around transit hubs and other things like that in the, in the suburbs. It's, it's not wrongheaded, but I think politically it's non-astute because anybody who's gone to a local planning board meeting knows they are well attended. People really care about what's going to be built in their communities. They're very invested in it. It's one of the core functions of home rule, which we are a home rule state. And so she has to somehow persuade localities that there are types of new housing that will benefit you. It will allow your children to stay in town, these attached row houses, allowing accessory dwelling units so that older people can move into the little place and rent the bigger place to their kids or for somebody else. We need a variegated supply. We need duplexes and triplexes. But if the suburbs feel that she's shoving subsidized low-income housing down their throat, if they get a whiff of that, they are going to just dig in and oppose it. 
Well, we're starting to see a little bit of that already. I mean, I think the way that this the conversation is being framed is there is a difference between incentivizing building and permitting and new housing and then uh, requiring it, or as you say, shoving it down their throats. And so the reactions to those two things are very different. I mean, I think one of the one of the great things about local government, about the most local level of government, is like you said, you can have a voice in it. You can show up at the planning board meetings and to town hall, and you can have an opinion, and the community should be able to decide how that works together. Uh, so jumping into what the governor has proposed, because, of course, she has a plan to deal with the housing crisis in New York. Um, part of it is to spend lots and lots of money. But the other part is what we're talking about right now is sort of mandating a change in the way that communities develop and what they are and are not required to do. Um, is that going to get to solving the problem if 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 that is implemented the way the governor has proposed it, if it is funded appropriately? Uh, the, her plan calls for creating 800,000 new housing units over the next 10 years. Sounds like a lot when our, you know, when our population numbers are going down. What What's the logistical and sort of reality-based truth behind that proposal? Well, I, I, I just wonder, again, whether politically it will fly. Because remember, what she's proposed is for a state board to be able to override local zoning decisions. So if a developer were to come forward and want to build, you know, 20 attached row houses near the uh, uh, the Merrick Long Island train station on LIR train station, and Merrick Long Island said, well, no, that's going to create too much traffic. Presumably this state board could then override the local zoning board. Wow. That's just a big, big change. And I expect there would be court fights and everything else. I'd much rather see the governor say, look, here's some, here's some proposals. Here's some model plans, model zoning that you may want to adopt because it's in your interest. It's going to make your town better. And if there's more school children that come in as a result, we'll help pay for the, their increased costs. In other words, Let's have carrots and carrots rather than sticks and sticks, which is what she's talking about now. What are some of the things that aren't going to cost $25 million or $25 billion that could be done that could begin to ease the pressure on the housing crisis? Well, I, you know, I would like to see uh, cities and towns and villages authorize more two-family houses. We built maybe a thousand of them in a year. Maybe it was a hundred, I forget, it was, it's in the report, but it's a vanishingly small number. Let's give families that are starting out choices. Mm -hmm. Let's let them have the choice of having a two-family house where they can pay the mortgage with the rent or a three-family house or an attached row house. Or, you know, let's convert some of these offices. Let's be imaginative about it rather than saying, how do we subsidize more people? So for instance, there's a whole question about what to do with these uh, vacant office buildings and hotels in Midtown Manhattan. Well, this is a tremendous opportunity, but if we insist that they all be studio apartments of a certain size, that's not gonna serve the market well. Let's see what the market wants to provide and try to let the regulations, the permitting process, accommodate them. For instance, I have this crazy idea that 
younger people might want to live in shared spaces, kind of like college dormitories where they have shared uh, kitchens. Uh, and they'd be really inexpensive. Do they want to live there long term? No, but when they live there for three years, yeah. Should it be an option? Mayor Bloomberg once proposed micro units, 400 square feet. Some people are willing to live in 400 square feet for a really cheap rent. So why can't why can't that be done right now? Why can't we build more, you know, duplexes and and micro pot apartments or whatever you want to call them? Why why isn't that being done? Why can't it be done? Uh, it can be done, but the zoning right now doesn't doesn't envision it, and so everything would need a variance. You know, we need as of right building. That's the builder's term for I can just do it because yeah. the zoning allows it, and builders developers. I, I also, you know, hope that the development community, one of my favorite examples in New York history is William Levitt, who built Levittown. He went to, to the authorities on Long Island and said, I want to build this really big place with uh, uh, small uh, ranch houses. And they said, well, no, you can't do that because you don't have any basements in these houses. And he didn't say, well, I'm going to appeal, go to court. Instead, he packed the next hearing with a thousand veterans who needed a house. And they said, we don't care about the basement. And the authorities got really intimidated and they let him build Levittown, you know, which is still a thriving community and served so many people in, in the 40s and 50s. I want the developers to come forward and say, we will do this if you'll let us. And I want them to go to the town boards and say, there's a market for duplexes. It's not subsidized. It's your kids who want to move in here, and I want to build 80 of them, and they're going to be near the train station. And convince people, persuade people. That has to be part of it because the nimbyism is deep, and they've been scared off by a history of the Urban Development Corporation in New York, which wanted to scatter site low-income subsidized housing. They don't want that. Right. So, I mean, this concept, we keep talking about NIMBYism, so that's the not-in-my-backyard attitude that happens in a lot of times when we talk about development issues. Um, and to be fair, to some extent, there are people that live in places because of the place, because of the character of a community, because of, and this is why you and I both think that there would be pushback should the governor shove these, you know, regulations down your throat with a state board that could overrule local um, localities and their decision making, but at the same time, it does create that problem. And again, I don't mean to keep going back to Long Island, but it seems like there's a lot of examples on Long Island. People want to live there, and they can't because of all of these issues with being able to get permits and build new housing and have the right type of housing. Um, it happens both on the residential and the commercial side, and there are examples of it all across the state, of course. How do you convince these people on Long Island and in the Hudson Valley and all over New York? that this is in their best interest. And I agree with you, right? I think it's up to the developers who own the property, who have property rights to go and make their case and be winning. But you do have to get the bureaucracy of government out of your way in order to do that. Um, so short of an example from 60 or 70 years ago in Levittown, which which is you know a little bit old, um, how do we do that in the modern day when anything's almost really only got bigger and harder? Well, you know, movements have... Uh, their own momentum. That's that's kind of redundant, but it's true. So there's a movement and it's taking root around the country called the missing middle. We need housing for the missing middle. And it's a great phrase because people think the middle class is being howled, hollowed out. 
the housing market is only for the rich and the poor. And so I think that we need to sell the idea of the missing middle. It's a real thing. And the middle is small houses, some of them multifamily on small lots. That's the secret to affordable housing. It always has been, always will be, unless you just subsidize the heck out of it. And we can't do that anymore. We, we just, well, and it's not working, right? It's not working. Exactly. People stay put and they tie up those units forever. And I think if you go to the town boards in a lot of places and say, we're just talking about converting uh, uh, raised ranches to uh, two units, one of them turning the garage into a, a granny flat. It doesn't change the character dramatically, but you could create 500 new units that are legal. A lot of those units are out there, they're informal, not legal. That doesn't help you when you want to get a mortgage or all of that, uh, when you want to reap the benefit of the investment that you've made. But I think there are modest incremental changes to serve this missing middle housing market. And that's an appealing phrase. People want to help the missing middle. They want to help their kids stay in town. And that's got to be persuasion rather than feeling, oh, oh here comes the low-income housing. Yeah, well, it's, I think incremental is a good word. And I was thinking a minute ago that I was already regretting how many times I've used the term housing crisis in this last 20 minutes, because it's not a crisis. It's been around for decades. And, and so using the word crisis means it feels like we have to solve it overnight, which is how you get into these big entitlement and subsidy programs. And really what it is, is about trying new things and, and seeing if they work and seeing if they fit in a community. And so an incremental approach where maybe you do take initially a dozen raised ranches and convert them into duplexes and, and see how it feels and let the community see it and react to it yeah. before you build 500 of them or do something that grand. Um, so that it does seem like a, the right way to approach it on a community by community basis. It's not going to solve the problem overnight, um, but I somehow don't think we're also going to build 800,000 affordable units in the next 10 years. Yeah, about half of those are preserving affordable units. It means shoveling more subsidies down units that have an expiring use subsidy. I don't want to get into the weeds on it, but so it's actually not new construction. But let's let let's give markets a chance to work. That that's what I'm saying. Let's let them try to serve the demand and give them the chance to work imaginatively in new ways without being quashed. Uh, and I, I think gradually we would start to undistort our market. That's why we have the crisis that never ends because our market has been so distorted in ways that are atypical for any other uh, city in the United States. Well, that makes a lot or of sense. State, or state. Yeah, right. No, I, that makes a lot of sense um, from your lips, right, to the <laughs> Capitol in Albany, I guess, or City Hall. Uh, well, Howard, thank you for doing this. This is a great conversation. Obviously, a lot to unfold over the legislative session and through the council session in New York City over the course of this year. And maybe we'll get a chance to check back in and, and see how we did at the end of it all. Well, I look forward to that, Tim. And thanks for all the great work the Empire Center is doing. I appreciate that. All right. Take care, Howard. Okay. Thanks for having me. Hello, everyone. I'm Ken Girardin, a fellow at the Empire Center for Public Policy. Thanks for joining us on my first and potentially last time hosting Messages of Necessity. Last week, we saw the conclusion of a pretty ugly process. Governor Hochul in December nominated Justice Hector LaSalle to be the chief judge on New York's top court, the Court of Appeals, 
Justice LaSalle came under immediate attack, primarily on social media, over some past decisions. Uh, this culminated in a Judiciary Committee hearing in January, best described as a kangaroo court, with LaSalle repeatedly correcting senators. After the committee voted down his nomination, Senate leaders argued the matter was settled. Senator Anthony Palumbo from Long Island filed a lawsuit to force a full Senate vote, and the Senate responded last week by holding a vote in hopes of staving off what could be a groundbreaking ruling. Uh, LaSalle's nomination was defeated, and the nomination process has begun again. But the episode gave us a good or bad look at the state of affairs in Albany. I'm joined today by Cam McDonald, director of the Government Justice Center and an adjunct fellow at the Empire Center. Cam's job at the Government Justice Center is to sue the government when it breaks the rules. Uh, in his free time, he enjoys suing the government when it breaks the rules. Cam, you argued early on in this process that the Senate's committee vote wasn't enough and that the state constitution required a full vote of the Senate. Uh, the the South case highlighted, among other things, the question of what it means when the Senate must give its advice and consent to an appointment. Tell us what happened. So uh, early on in the process, uh, um, as soon as the Judicial Nominating Commission put forward its slate of seven uh, potential nominees to the court, uh, a lot of opposition research uh, came out. And uh, LaSalle was among the, the targets of the people who were uh, opposing uh, potential nominees. Uh, regardless, uh, Governor Hochul uh, nominated uh, Chief, uh, Hector LaSalle for the chief judge position. Uh, for whatever reason, the Senate decided that it needed to put the fix in uh, on defeating his nomination at the at the committee level. The issue then became, well, could a committee do that? The Constitution says that the nomination, the, the nominee must be appointed with the advice and consent of the Senate. And the question then was, was the Senate's own rules and its committee structure sufficient to defeat a nominee, or 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 are those rules uh, not able to um, usurp a constitutional obligation on the part of the Senate? Uh, I argued early on that a case from 30 years ago called King v. Cuomo set out that the the Senate can't set up the legislature can't set up rules that uh, negate constitutional processes and that as far back as uh, the Federalist Papers and Alexander Hamilton, the meaning of advice and consent of the Senate meant the full Senate uh, voting as a body on the nominee. And, you know, because it makes sort of it makes a checks and balance sense that the governor appoints, uh, tries to appoint somebody to the court and the full Senate votes on it. And so then all 63 senators are answerable to their constituents throughout the state on their vote, up or down on the candidate. Right. They don't have plausible deniability to just say that they weren't on that committee. They're not responsible for that person being on the job or not being on the job. Uh, yeah, no, I think it's fair enough. I think it's fair enough also uh, to give the other side, uh, you know, to, to, I guess, to steel man this um, somewhat, you know, it, it may be fair enough to say, okay, well, the majority is the majority. It gets to set the rules. Uh, and that's an argument that can be made. So the majority set the rules and they set rules that say that the committee can, uh, to, can terminate this thing at that, at a nomination at that that level, I think that's a fair enough argument, but it's also not what was intended when the founders put the advice and consent into uh, into the Constitution, because 
it goes all the way back to 1821 when the Constitutional Convention then added the consent of the Senate to certain appointments to the government. And it was replacing something that was called the Council of Appointments, which was a committee of four senators from different regions of the state who would do all the appointments in to to the government. And it had become over its 40 year existence had become infamous for being a source of patronage and corruption. Looking back at this whole process, I'm, I'm curious to hear what you found to be the ugliest moment. Uh, for me, I mean, besides the gross mischaracterizations of what Justice LaSalle's opinions had said or had meant, uh, one of the worst moments was when senators were attacking Justice LaSalle for the way that the second department is operated. The, the second department is where you go to appeal for most lawsuits filed uh, in New York City or, or downstate. Um, and Justice LaSalle was attacked for the amount of time it's taken the second department to clear cases. And the amazing thing was these attacks were coming from the people who set not just the appropriation that the judiciary has to work with to clear these appeals, but where the number of judges in the department is decided and where the staff, uh, a lot of the key, the key rules about whether cases can be appealed or not are set. Um, the Senate is essentially the board of directors for the judiciary in of lot of respects. So to see the justice attacked by that over a problem that, as I understand it, Cam, the Senate has not been really tuned into before this moment. This might be the first time they were acknowledging those problems in any meaningful way, um, in at least all the time I've been paying attention. Yeah, me too. Um, in the time I've been paying attention, I haven't really heard anything, uh, uh, anybody discussing seriously any sort of legislative improvements to uh, reduce um, the, the the volume of appeals at that intermediate level of, uh, appellate court. New York's a little bit unique in how easy it is to appeal trial court um, uh, rulings that not just, you know, not just judgments, but rulings on on motions and so on, which is a contributing factor to the high the volume. Um, and I just, you know, there hasn't, I haven't seen anything uh, with the, the the legislature discussing rule changes or, or really addressing much with respect to the judiciary and the volume in the judiciary and delays in case determinations throughout the entire uh, system, you know, there's a lot of, there's just not a lot of attention paid to the administrative administration of justice in this state by the legislature from my observation. Well, fortunately we have a bigger judiciary committee now, so maybe they can work on it. <laughs> yes, we can, we will, we'll check to see, uh, the agendas for the next few meetings of the committee <laughs> for sure. Now, where did you see the the worst point of the LaSalle saga? Yeah, I do think that the mischaracterizations of what of of his uh, his determinations and, and his decisions was was disturbing. And I think it's because and, and and it was part of a process of the Senate crossing the Rubicon on this nomination in that they went well beyond whether he was qualified to do the job, you know, a judge who's qualified to do the job is going to give you decisions that you don't like. 
because they're going to take the law as it's written and apply it to the facts as given. And there may be results that um, are, are unsavory uh, in, to your sense of, of justice. And so, um, you know, I think to give him credit, Senator Jamal Bailey was you know, calling out his colleagues a little bit during the hearing when he was questioning Justice LaSalle by saying, hey, so essentially saying, if we were to draft these laws better and apply them to the facts of these cases, we would get a different result, correct? And 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 Justice LaSalle, you know, had to agree with him because that's how judging works. And he welcomed it. He, he said welcomed they would, it. He said, they would wel- he said that the, the court was uh, oh, desperate in some cases for the legislature to do a better job clarifying what their intentions were. Exactly. And, and, and also, you know, he was, he was raked over the coals for one decision where or for a couple of decisions where he was following existing court of appeals precedent. And one of those cases uh, regarding juror preemption challenges, um, the court of appeals ultimately changed what the law is in this state and probably for the better. They, they recognize that, you know, the color of your skin, such an immutable characteristic shouldn't be, uh, the subject of a preemptory challenge. Thank you for joining us today on Messages of Necessity. Please make sure to subscribe so you can hear about all the other craziness we're still figuring out in New York State government. For more news and analysis, visit our website and sign up for email updates at empirecenter.org. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Empire Center. Like this episode? Remember to rate and review this podcast.